Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by Professor Mark Hayter. Mark Hayter's got a long history of teaching and research in sexual health and was involved in HIV care in the early days. Mark is also a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing, which I'm led to believe not many UK nurses are part of, so we'll hopefully hear more about that as we move through our podcast. Mark is also a fellow of the Royal College of Nursing. He has an international recognition for Sigma in the International Hall of Fame. He's also the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Clinical Nursing and also the Head of Nursing at Manchester Metropolitan University. So thank you so much, Mark, for agreeing to be part of today's show and for all the behind-scenes support for the podcast. It's been very much appreciated. So thank you and you're very welcome today. You're welcome, Michelle. Thank you for that lovely welcome and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you. So Mark, I'm mindful I've just read your bio for the listeners. I'm hoping during today's podcast we'll find out a little bit more about the rich work that you've done in this area of care and also the amazing projects that you've led in. So can I just start by asking you, what drew you to this work or get involved with this area of care, please? Yeah, thanks. I mean, the, the bio, that the, the older you get, the longer they are. So that uh, you did a very good job there. I think uh, I can trace my involvement back really to... Uh, when I first qualified as as a registered nurse, uh, which would have been, I think, about 1987, uh, which was just really when the AIDS epidemic, well, AIDS pandemic was was starting to sort of really pick up in the UK. Still not an awful lot known uh, about it at that time, certainly outside the United States. But my first uh, job as 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 an RN, was to work on a haematology oncology unit. Uh, and because we had the haemophilia unit on that ward, we were the natural home for any patients with HIV uh, in, that, in that hospital, which was a hospital in the north of England. Uh, so outside of, of London, uh, there weren't very many HIV uh people living with HIV or AIDS around. Uh, so it was very unusual to get clinical experience in caring for people with AIDS. So I got that. Uh, 
and it, and it was purely by by circumstance by me being a, uh, joining that ward as a registered nurse and as a result of getting that experience and seeing you know that the, the things people in their families and their loved ones went through uh, that then led to me uh, taking up a uh, a, an academic post in, in teaching nurses about uh, caring for people with AIDS. And really that's what started my teaching and my research career off. So like many careers, they often start with you being in the right place at the right time uh, and, and circumstance rather than plan. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like the landscape of HIV care when you first came into it was that of maybe a palliative care area. It was. I mean, uh, thinking back to, you know, 87, uh, we'd really just started to get some of the preliminary data through from the uh, the trials into AZT. Now, you'll have to forgive my historical knowledge here, but I'm thinking that the, the early trials that were done and actually stopped prematurely uh, into the drug AZT were just revealing that it did seem to improve uh, longevity in people who'd got system, symptomatic disease by about 50%. Uh, but really, once people develop symptoms as a result of their HIV infection, it was primarily one of palliative care and life expectancies was, was less than 12 months uh, at that particular point. Back in the early days, the kind of Lazarus effect with AZT, but you know, overall the picture was that of a life-limiting disease of, of predominantly young people. And of course, we learned some interesting lessons about that drug trial that was stopped early, uh, when actually, if it had carried on, would have realised that starting people without any symptoms on the drug wouldn't have been any use. It was only when symptoms started that the impact of the actual drug was demonstrated but the, the trial was stopped early for a variety of reasons. So over the past kind of four decades of HIV care we've mentioned briefly the the early days and you know drug trials and what care was like but has there been anything that stood out for you with regards to this aspect of HIV care? So much Michelle to be honest it's a really difficult question I mean the, the, the advancements in therapy, incredible, you know, 30, 40 years when I started the drug AZT was the only drug that was available. It wasn't a very good drug, to be perfectly honest, but it, it, it did have some impact. And then we started to look at combination therapy and different drugs came along. Protease inhibitors was a, were a big deal uh, kind of in the mid 90s to where we are now with you know, HIV infection uh, being a, a manageable chronic viral infection with very, very effective drugs. And, and the other thing, of course, is the reduction in the polypharmacy. You know, certainly in the mid to late 90s, people would be having to take a handful of drugs every, you know, several times a day, mm. some of them with food, some of them without, some of them had to be in a fridge. You know, it was, it was dreadful, the polypharmacy. Now, not only have we got more effective drugs, but we've got fewer of them. So that's one thing. My personal belief is that although it was very traumatic at the time, one of the positives to come out of the, the, the AIDS pandemic has been the patient voice. You know, when I think back to healthcare in the mid 80s, we hardly ever involved patients in research or the development of services or care. And for, for all sorts of reasons, the, you know, the, 
the the, the patient voice, the, the the community voice around HIV and AIDS, they're demanding to be have a say on tr research trials, demanding better care, better facilities, better services, etc. Uh, pave the way for for now something we take as researchers absolutely for granted that we involve our patients and communities in in planning and developing care research studies and treatment and services we never did that so i think that aids really paved the way for that and i think that's that's really one important thing and the other is it changed the way we talk about sexuality uh from not really a good point but certainly what aids did was put human sexuality much more onto the map and we didn't use the term sexual health before for example so it, it created out of some quite negative stuff around sexuality and, and sexual orientation, those kind of things, it actually opened up a, a dialogue in, in in nursing, particularly that I think uh, has now become more positive, and that's the recognition of of sexual health and sexuality as part of you know human existence and needs to be part of care and treatment. Thank you. I know you've mentioned that you're an educator of nurses, so this kind of leads nicely onto my next um, question. How have you observed, and you started to talk about it, um, sex and sexuality becoming to the more to the forefront as a result of the HIV epidemic? I'm just wondering, how have you observed changes in this being taught over the years in nurse education? I always think about it as being in distinct phases. I think the, the first battle if you like was to actually get people to acknowledge that sexuality was needed to be part of care you know that there were aspects of of human sexuality that needed to be recognized by nurses you know it was that winning that battle you know against nurses who would say well what's sexuality got to do with the the, the care i provide for my patients so it's actually kind of recognizing that and then, and then moving on from that, it was then trying to make it clear that 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 there were different sexualities and sexual orientations. So in those early days, people would accept, you know, okay, we need to think about sexuality as part of our patients. But that was kind of it. Always made the heterosexual assumption. It always made the assumption that all people weren't sexually active, or that people with disabilities weren't. So where so the second phase was trying to encourage people to understand the, the dimensions and the breadth and scope of of sexual health and then i think after that it was kind of okay but how how are my patients possibly affected you know we, we can look back to the care we provided for let's say you know women undergoing mastectomies or men with prostate cancer for example we very rarely acknowledge the sexual elements and the impact of those treatments and those care on body image sexuality sexual performance sexual behavior etc so it was kind of okay sexuality needs to be part of care what does that mean and then i think the the final stage was okay uh, but what works? How how can we be effective in this particular area? And so we're we're in that kind of phase now, but we still occasionally have to fight some of those earlier battles. If that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. 
when I started my nurse training, sexuality was that box that we just always filled in as not discussed. And I think we've definitely moved on from that. And I know you mentioned previously about the involvement in um, people living with HIV or even people in research trials. I've recently been watching Masters and Johnston um, about kind of the sexual revolution. And we sometimes, what we know now we forget how we know what we know. So that journey that we've been on, which is always important to, to acknowledge. Absolutely. It's interesting. You know, what we think of as a sexual revolution really wasn't. Uh, you know, we think about the swinging 60s and things like that. We forget that contraception wasn't available to single women until 1974, for example. Uh, swinging 60s, maybe in certain parts of London, but the rest of the UK was pretty conservative with a small C, socially conservative for most of the 60s and 70s, to be, to be frank. Yeah, definitely. It is when you kind of look back at his, historical things and you, they think that they're quite like revolutionary, like you say, naturally, it's quite tame. Yeah. So just thinking about that, how would you like to see these topics being taught moving forward? Uh, I think, you know, like like everybody, uh, more time spent on it in the nursing curriculum. I still don't think there's an awful lot of time dedicated to uh, sexuality in the nursing curriculum. So I definitely think more uh, work could be done there. Maybe more work for students to do their dissertations on this particular topic. Uh, so I think, uh, it, although it is included in nurse education, I don't think it's included as much as it as it could and should be uh and that's been a continual battle because you know there's always competition for 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 space in in nursing curriculums and uh we, we add an awful lot but we're not very good at taking stuff out uh but certainly in the uk for example you know maybe there's an argument for saying do the students need to do so much clinical experience would those hours be better exploring some of the other issues so uh, i think i'd like to see a little bit more inclusion and there's there's also it varies considerably from university to university and time after time michelle a lot of it comes down to the fact that have they got a member of staff who's interested in this topic uh you know and that's leaving it really to chance you know no one would say well, we only include caring for a breathless patient because we've got somebody who's interested in it in the in, on the faculty. We wouldn't do that. But yet, time and again, you know, you get that that the sexuality is always an additional extra if we've got time or someone's interested. Yeah, I think I think you're right. We wouldn't exclude like caring for somebody who's breathless because we didn't have somebody. Um, and I, th I guess it's about um, people's comfort zones as well. We just talked about the sexual revolution and actually, does it come back to how comfortable we feel about talking about these issues? It does. And to pick up my example, you know, as a breathless patient or a patient who's had a, a heart attack, for example, both of those patients may have, those conditions may impact upon their, on their sexuality. You know, so even if we are teaching a lot of, you know, if we're teaching student nurses about, uh, you know, let, let's say a middle-aged man who has a myocardial infarction, what is the advice you give that person about res resuming their, their sex life, for example? And a massive quality of life issues as we move forward, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. 
you know and, the, um, and we've got evidence on on things like that of how to address it and how to bring it up with patients and what the best form of advice is so you know and and that's and we know from patients that, that they want to know that stuff they're worried about it how it might impact on their relationships for example so you know there's there's, there's a patient need there so that should be being taught now i'm not entirely sure how often or whether that is included. No, that's definitely one to think about and to, to look into a little bit further. So I think when we first started um, to, to talk about HIV and our kind of common kind of um, interest in HIV care. You mentioned that you'd attended some of the first ever kind of national conferences and I know you was involved in the National HIV Nurses Association. I was just wondering if you're able to share any fond memories from them conferences for our listeners. Yeah, I mean national and international ones. And and they were they were huge events. You know, when I first started going to the AIDS conferences, late early 90s particularly you know, uh, one memory I have, of course, was the uh, the AIDS conf, the global, the international AIDS conference that was supposed to be in Harvard in in the United States, but it ended up having to be in Amsterdam. This was in 1992, and the reason for that switch was because the United States didn't let anybody with HIV into the country. So the organisers were left in a situation where they'd organised a conference in uh, Boston, I think it is, uh, where and, and no one with HIV would be allowed to go. So uh, from outside, so that they, they rapidly changed it to Amsterdam. So you know the, the impact on the kind of global travel issue. Uh, but those conferences were huge events, uh, and very good for disseminating research but also just creating a network at that time what you have to remember is it, there was a siege mentality you know there was a lot of negativity around publicly in the press in the media about aids and hiv and you know homosexuality and you know, all those kind of things and a lot of people working in that field could feel quite isolated so the conferences were a really good way of kind of meeting you know contemporaries getting support feeling that you were part of a of a substantial global health public health movement but of course the other thing going back to what i was saying about the involvement of patient groups you know at that point it was actually quite radical you know there were i i remember seeing aids activists trash a drug company's stand in a in a conference uh and you would never get, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, you wouldn't get a bunch of diabetics going up and trashing a, a, an insulin company or, or, you know, or whatever. I don't know. It was just that that kind of activism. And, and, and that precipitated the involvement of, you know, patients and people with HIV and AIDS and, and their allies actually getting involved in, you know, drug trials and treatments. And it, it made a lot of those drug companies actually sit up and listen in terms of the treatment they were offering and the price of drugs. So those are the things that, that I remember. But uh, the kind of being able to share and, and talk with, with like-minded colleagues, I think, was, was, was really important. And, of course, 
that's where a lot of the big breakthroughs in treatment were were sort of 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 mentioned you know and, and a lot of people very very senior in the world around research and policy would be present at these things and the nivna ones were, were were very good because of the nursing focus and it it did create some really good long long lasting you know collaborations and friendships for me so i've got very fond memories of them i'm not sharing any stories about the discos uh <laughs> or, or the uh or the conference dinners at all, Michelle. But uh, those who were there will remember them very well. Oh, thank you for your candidness with that. And, <laughs> yeah, and the conferences are always a really special place, in, hold a very special place in my heart, because I think yeah. you're right. I love the fact that we've got a really good, strong community presence at the conference, um, and yeah. they help us co-create care, which is absolutely amazing and i think just listening to and reflecting that's i've never worked in another disease area i've always worked in hiv care so yeah i don't know how other diseases work um but yeah i do i'm really passionate about our strong public involvement yeah yeah as well i think there's a, a, a real legacy there i think that has has borne fruit in other you know health issues Thank you. So we mentioned at the start, Mark, that you're Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Clinical Nursing. And just some fun facts for our listeners. Mark has over 132 publications, which have been cited more than a thousand times, um, which actually blew my mind when I read this. I was like, wow, gosh, that's an absolutely phenomenal. And I'm sure there's probably more than a thousand um, citations now. Um, I've used, obviously, some of your early work um, around burnout to craft arguments within my own work. Um, so I'm just wondering, out of all the, these articles, and I bet it's hard for you to, you know, this is not an easy question, is there one or a few that stand out the most for you um, that you may be able to share with our listeners? Uh, yeah, I mean, one that I remember was one of the first papers I published, and it was around non-judgmental non care. And, and I think it's still it's still as resonant today as it, as it was then. You know, it was talking primarily around nurses recognizing that they you know they 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 need to provide non-judgmental care and it, and it kind of challenged this assumption that i came across quite a lot that nurses seem to think and i'm using nurses it could be other health professionals as well seem to think that simply putting on a uniform uh, either metaphorically or actually uh, made you into some kind of neutral uh, person that you didn't take the attitudes you held in everyday life into the care you provided and, and we know we knew from research that that wasn't true you know patients did feel stigmatized etc by health professionals so it was it was kind of saying that don't make the assumption you need to think about what your attitudes are towards certain things and, and how you're going to think through and reflect on that and how that uh, and, and why you might hold those views and also how that might influence the care you give. So that, that would be something that I think is, I, I'm, you know, I'm still proud of that. And, and the other was kind of doing the work around how HIV care uh, caused stress in nurses who were looking after people with AIDS. You know, I think it was, you know, we, we only, I started doing that research and we only really started to, understand the the impacts uh, of of aids care on nurses you know we knew that it was obviously a significant thing for patients but some of that was transferred uh and the sort of stress and and it probably was unique in that 
uh, a lot of the nurses couldn't get help from their family either. You know, if you were caring for people with, I don't know, dementia, for example, and you have a tough day, then I'm generalizing here, but you would probably expect support from your extended family about that. But if you're caring for, I don't know, a, a gay man who's dying of AIDS and you go home, then there's probably a huge reticence of actually disclosing that for a start, or there was back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you certainly wouldn't be able to get, or sorry, you wouldn't ex, you wouldn't be able to express that to your friends and family, uh, and mm-hmm. expect to get a positive, affirming, you know, reassuring response as you would do for other uh, stressful situations. So what I'm trying to say is, I think a lot of those nurses felt isolated because they weren't mm-hmm. able to access the familial and social support that a lot of nurses seek, uh, you know, from their immediate family and their friendship groups because of the fear of their reaction. Yeah, I I mean, I'm obviously very familiar with that piece of work because I've used it a few times. Um, And we've recently, as Nivna, done some work around the psychological cost of caring. And I think you're right, we, you know, it was a moment in time where the support and, you know, dealing with those issues and then not having a safe space to kind of talk through those issues. And also that that kind of society expecting, just because we've got the uniform on, because we've got the title of nurse, Mm. that we somehow not exposed to these things or that we can cope um, as well. So I think it does really shine a light on the fact that actually as nurses, we do need to have support in order to be able to give the care we need. Yeah. With all those publications, do you have any top tips for our listeners with regards to writing for publication? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I talk about these a lot. Very quickly, I think one is uh, always read the guidelines of the journal. Mm -hmm. Uh, and make sure you choose the journal before you write the manuscript, not the other way around. Otherwise, you'll have a lot of editing to do unnecessarily. Uh, Make sure you are aware of the international standards associated with the paper you're writing. You know, journals use all kinds of international gold standards for presenting different types of research so for example if you're doing a literature review make sure you're familiar with prisma if you're doing a randomized control trial make sure you understand the consort guidelines and the consort statement because journals will ask you to do a checklist so or, or the strobe guidelines or, or whatever so make sure you're you're familiar with those uh, get feedback from someone you trust on your work uh always remember that nothing's perfect the first time you write it the best writers are actually the best rewriters uh we all go back and edit our work writing is a skill it's not something you're born able to do it's like cycling it's quite simple the more you do it the better you get so and also read a lot as well you know people the best writers tend to read a lot uh and if you're writing for an international journal Make sure that your journal, your right, your paper has is it has it got an international message? You know, internationalize your paper. Uh, and finally, uh, always have a plan B. Uh, writing for publication is about deal is about learning to deal with rejection. That never goes away. 
you never reach a magical point where all your papers are always accepted. That doesn't happen. So learn to treat rejection positively and have a plan. So always think, you know, if, if this journal rejects my paper, where can I go? And finally, always remember if your paper's rejected, it's not a rejection of you, it's a rejection of your manuscript. And there may be many reasons for that. Thank you. Thanks so much for sharing that. I've t definitely taken away a lot of those um, top tips. I'm just like, right, yeah. note to self, I'll write that down I after. I can't guarantee they're going to work, Michelle, but uh, they certainly are useful to bear in mind. Thank you. So recently I went to your inaugural lecture at Manchester Metropolitan University um, and also that was part of my um, pre-podcast research and also looking at your phenomenal career. I was just wondering um, from kind of doing all this research and looking at all the contributions you've made to sexual health, HIV and psychosexual health, do you have any tips for our listeners that you wish somebody had shared with you at the start of your career? Uh... Don't be too worried about what other people think of you. <laughs> well, we could probably all say that. Uh, have confidence and belief in your own ability. Uh, develop strong networks and really invest in the sort of professional friendships you develop uh, because they can can bear fruit. Uh, and always treat early career researchers or junior scholars that you come across and that you're involved with uh, with care uh, and respect and that's for several reasons one because it's of course it's the right thing to do but actually those young people who you are helping along the way maybe in in, in an international context are the future deans of faculties so you know they, they, they may be helpful to you later in your career so you never know so I think that's that's certainly a message that uh, I think mentorship is really really important for uh, people like me who've got a lot of experience and you know a, a career that I can be proud of but I think it's it's about how you pass that on and how you help other people uh, develop as, as researchers and scholars. I think that's that's always an important part of, of your career and you always need to make space for that, I would say. Thank you. So Mark, you have had an amazing career and I'm not sure I did you justice at the start, but is there anything, because it might be hard for you to think, is there anything that particularly stands out for you as your kind of proudest moment? Yeah, well, it's not over yet, Michelle. I should I know, exactly. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> offering you to retirement or anything. No. Uh, sorry, you're going to have to say that again. Is there anything that stood out? Yeah, is there anything that particularly stood out for you within your career as your kind of career high, maybe? I don't know well, if career's not um, over yet. No, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you. I think, I think for me, that recognition from your peers is the most important thing so uh 
becoming a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing in 2013, when I think there were only about 10 or 11 UK uh, fellows in the American Academy was, was, was great. Uh, becoming last year a fellow of my Royal College of Nursing in the UK was, was something that I'd always set as a benchmark for my career i you know i always thought if i can get that then i you know that would be one of the things i could tick off as that's a really good benchmark sorry the lighting's just going here uh and and, and of course the other benchmark was the uh sigma international uh, nurse research hall of fame so in a way that those three things you know looking back and thinking well if i could get one of those three things before you know you know in in my career i i would be delighted but to get three was was superb particularly the rcn fellowship and the sigma which were in the same year which was a really uh bonus it 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 uh it was very 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 heartwarming to get those and and to get recognition from your peers is is really what you want uh as, as an academic so i was very happy with those and they're, they're standout moments to me thank you so thank you so much for being part of the podcast now this is this part where we get to know a little bit more about you i know you've been very open with your career so far but this is a bit more about you as a person um could you share with our listeners something that you do as part of your self-care uh it's really important self-care i think i'm uh I enjoy music. I collect vinyl records, so I spend an awful lot of money <laughs> on equipment and things like that. So I get a lot of uh, uh, relaxation out of out of that, and and, and looking for and, and buying maybe secondhand records and things like that. So I do that. Uh, I read uh, occasionally. I I one of the things that I like to do. I don't do it very often, but I I make model aeroplanes, and and I think they're uh, it's quite good because uh, it, it absorbs you physically and mentally. So you, you, when you're watching a film or listening to music, it's very easy for your mind to drift back to work. But when you're doing something practical like a craft activity, uh, I think that they, that can be very relaxing and I, I enjoy doing that. Uh, I don't do it often enough, but it's it's quite a nice little hobby to have definitely that sounds amazing yeah just like you say just doing using different parts of your brain as well absolutely brilliant thank you can you share with us a book that you're reading at the moment i can i'm reading it there's a series of books and uh there's an excellent book and it's called white heat and it's by dominic sandbrook uh, and it's a social history of Britain and it's this deals with ironically what we're talking about earlier on it's called the history of Britain in the swinging 60s the white heat is a reference to uh, a phrase that the the prime minister uh, at the time made about the white heat of technology and it's it's a great social history book uh, and I'm reading it out of order typically there's one earlier that was called never had it so good which is based on another phrase of prime minister went and it's a social history of the 1960s and it starts in 1963 when i was born so it's a brilliant book because it combines things like politics and social history so there'll be a chapter on uh 
politics but then there'll be a chapter on popular music it talks about the beatles and the rolling stones and you know the way in which popular culture influenced and and there's there's chapters on you know uh, changes you know sexual liberation and all that kind of thing so and it's absolutely superbly written uh so i would highly recommend it thank you i will check that out and we'll also pop that in the hiv matters bookstore as well i mean it's interesting it's 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 a great book to read but it, it overlaps with some of the stuff we've been talking about ironically as well that's brilliant finally this is a tough question but i'm going to ask it anyway um and feel free this can be on anything you want um so this is the magic wand question if time resources and money weren't an issue what would you like to change or seen done differently that is a tough question uh what immediately springs to mind is that i wish in the uk somebody had set up a nursing research funding council similar to the uh, nih uh, strand for nursing research in the in the united states uh nurses have always had to compete are often on in an, not a very level playing field with other health professionals and medics I really think there should have been and there should be uh, certainly, you know, going back to when I first started the researcher, it should have been a lot easier for nurses to get research funding to do nursing focused research. And that never really happened in the UK. And and, and that was a real shame. So if I could go back and, 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 and wave a magic wand, then then that would have been definitely uh, one of the things I would like to to, to create that didn't happen well thank you so much for sharing those answers with us to those questions and thank you so much for your time today mark it's been an absolute pleasure it's a pleasure michelle thank you for inviting me thank you, thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of hiv matters i don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show that's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.